Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning we're considering Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. This is part of the passage that we looked at two weeks ago, but last time we focused in on the whole idea of Jesus providing food for Israel and for the world. And this morning we want to focus specifically on the first part of this passage, which deals with the woman of Cana who comes to Jesus and asks Him to heal her daughter. And the entire discussion centers around this imagery of food. So with that in mind, let's read again then our passage, Matthew 15, 21 through 28. This is the Word of God. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. So Jesus says that this woman has great faith, and that is what we want to focus on this morning. What are the characteristics of great faith as we see from this woman of Canaan? So let's ask God's blessing. O God and Father, we pray now that you would open this passage to us by your Spirit. Uh, This woman, you have recorded her actions and her words forever in your Scriptures, and you have commended her for her faith. And you obviously call us to have the same faith. And so we pray now that you would speak to us and create this kind of great faith within us, that we would be to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we saw before, this whole discussion between Jesus and uh, this woman, which has to do with her seeking Jesus to do a miracle. She is asking Jesus basically to, to be in her life, to be in her daughter's life, to act with power, to act with miraculous power, healing power, saving power in her life of her family and particularly the life of her daughter. And this entire discussion, though, where Jesus doesn't immediately volunteer to do this. He kind of, we might say, gives her a hard time. He draws this out, and she persists. But it's interesting that their entire discussion about Jesus' power in her life centers around the imagery of food. Jesus says it's not good to take the food, the bread out of the children's mouths and to give it to the little dogs. 
And then the woman refers to it as food. She says, yes, Lord, but even the little dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. So we see that in this discussion, food or eating signifies God providing for his children. That's what eating signifies in this passage. Stated differently, it signifies experiencing the power and love of God in our lives to provide all that we need. That's what eating means in this passage. And the Canaanite woman shows us how to eat because she was fed. She was fed. And she shows us how to eat. Eating is a matter of faith. Eating is a matter of believing. And the Canaanite woman, like the Gentile centurion that we read about back in Matthew chapter 8, who came again, it was somebody in his household, this was a servant of his, he sought healing, Jesus was going to come, he says, don't trouble yourself, master, you don't need to come, just say the word. I am a man of authority, I'm a man under authority. I say, one goes, I say, another one comes, all you need to do is say the word. Jesus said the same thing about his faith, great was his faith, so I have not found such great faith in all Israel. And there will be a third time in the Gospel of Matthew, it'll be in chapter 20, that Jesus will say that somebody has great faith. In that case, it will be two blind men who call out the same thing that this woman does. Have mercy on us, O son of David. And they want to be healed. And we have the same kind of persistence. And so three times we have Jesus saying somebody has great faith and it's somebody who is very unlikely. Not even the disciples exhibited the kind of faith that these, unlikely, that these two unlikely Gentiles did, the, the Roman centurion and now the woman of Canaan. She's not just a Gentile, she's a Canaanite. A Canaanite. But she is said to have great faith. Uh, in this same passage, you know, the, the crowds come out to see Jesus, and he says that... Uh, he wants to feed them. He doesn't want to send them away because they're hungry and they're out in some remote regions near Tyre and Sidon. And the disciples say, well, we only have a few loaves of bread and a couple of little fish. How are we going to feed these people? Now, this is after Jesus has already fed the 5,000. After. And Jesus sets this up saying, I don't want to send them away lest they faint on the way, and the disciples will go, well, I don't know how we're going to feed all these people. The disciples are believers, but it, they're not exhibiting the kind of faith that this woman did, this Canaanite woman. Now, Jesus says her faith is great. In other words, she had the kind of faith every disciple should aspire to have. She is our example we want to have the kind of faith that she did. She wasn't special in any other way, in any normal way that we would signify. There's no indication that she was especially smart or educated or wealthy or popular or powerful. In fact, if she was those things, I think we would hear about it in the passage. She was none of those things. So she wasn't somebody who would say, well, yeah, it's all, it's all fine and good for her to have great faith. But, I mean, look at all these spiritual characteristics she has. 
She's wealthy. She's smart. She's educated. She's powerful. She's so popular. All these things. There's nothing like that. So there's no reason why we cannot be like her. There are no qualifiers. She had great faith for which she was commended by Jesus, for which she was fed by Jesus, and for which she forever appears in the pages of Scripture. This woman forever in the pages of Scripture. So let's take a look at her faith this morning. Let's take a look at what great faith looks like. What are its characteristics? Well, I think there are five characteristics of great faith that we see exemplified by the woman of Canaan. The first one is that great faith comes to Jesus and worships Him. Great faith comes to Jesus and worships Him. This is the cornerstone for all the other characteristics of great faith that we're going to look at this morning. Great faith acts. It does something. It doesn't just believe something. It does something. Great faith acts, and this is its fundamental action. It comes to Jesus, and it worships Him. Verse 25, that's what she did. She came to Jesus and worshiped Him. You notice that she really does so with her whole person. Her pleas, her petitions to Jesus are part of her worship. Notice verse 25. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Her petition, Lord, help me, is part of her worship. She worshipped him, saying. Her petitions and pleas and prayers are all part of her worship. And this is what true worship is. It involves the presenting of our whole selves to God. And that's what we see with her. That's what Paul is getting at when he says in Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. In other words, that's a way of saying presenting your whole self, including your body, because in the in the Hellenistic world of the Roman Empire, uh, they saw the, oftentimes saw the soul as being good and the body being evil. So it would be taken for granted that you would worship with your soul, but that you would worship with your body. Now, that was unusual. So this is a way of saying in the Hellenistic world, you worship with your whole self. He said, you present your bodies, everything, even your bodies, to God as living sacrifices acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. In other words, which is your reasonable worship. Because in the Hebrew, the word for worship is serve. That's what it means. We worship God, we serve God. It's the same word. And so Paul, when he wants to describe New Testament worship, he reaches back to Old Testament sacrificial imagery. The animal that was presented to God in the uh, ascension offering, often called in the, in the English translations, the whole burnt offering, it all goes up in the fire. Nothing is left. And, and we often think that the fire is a picture of the wrath of God. It's not. It's a picture of the glory of God. It's a picture of the animal as a substitute ascending into the presence of God, into his glory cloud. It's a picture of what we see on the day of Pentecost, where the fire comes and dwells upon 
the disciples, but they aren't burnt up. It's not wrath, it's glory. And so that is, that's what Paul reaches to when he wants us to understand New Testament worship. And then his very next verse flows from that. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This all flows from worship. So everything flows from true worship or what Jesus would call worship in spirit and in truth. It is worship in the Holy Spirit and it is genuine, sincere worship um, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a presenting of one's whole self to God through Christ. It's not holding anything back. So the first characteristic of great faith is that it comes to Jesus with the whole person. And it worships Jesus with the whole person. All of our pleas, our prayers, our petitions, our desires, every aspect of life is to be laid before Him, and it is all part and parcel to coming to Him and worshiping Him. Now, the second characteristic of great faith that we see here with the woman of Canaan is that it confesses Jesus as God as the Messiah of Israel, and as the King of the world. It confesses Jesus as three things. It confesses Jesus as God. It confesses Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. And it confesses Jesus as the King of the world. So, you're coming to Jesus and you're worshiping Him, the first thing that great faith does. But who is this Jesus you are coming to and worshiping? Jesus was an extremely common name in the first century. There were lots of Jesuses. And even today, there are lots of different Jesuses that people conceive of in their minds. Which one are you coming to and worshiping? Lots of people go by the same name. How do you tell them apart? Okay. When you can't see them, you've never seen them before, they're a historical figure. They have the same name. How do you know them? When I was in, uh, in uh, high school, there was a new kid who moved into the neighborhood, and his name, I met him at the bus stop the first day, his name's Charlie Brown. Well, there's other Charlie Browns, but he's not the Charlie Brown that you're probably thinking about. So how do we know? Well, we know by what the person has done and who they reveal themselves to be. Are you talking about Charlie Brown, the comics book? character? No, no, I'm talking about Charlie Brown who lives down the block. Are you talking about uh, John Roberts, uh, the uh, colonel in the army? No, I'm talking about John Roberts, the neurosurgeon who lives in Los Angeles. You tell them apart by what they've done and who they have revealed themselves to be. So the Jesus that the woman of Canaan comes to and worships is the one that we must come to and worship. And this one is God. And she is implicitly confessing Him as God through the fact that she is publicly worshiping Him. That's a public confession that Jesus is God because only God is to be worshipped. Whenever you have an angel in the Scriptures that somebody starts to worship, they always stop the person and say, No, I'm not God. Don't worship me. Jesus doesn't stop her. 
Just like he doesn't stop the disciples in Matthew 28 when he's about to send into heaven and he gives them the great commission, they come and worship him on the mountain. He doesn't stop them because he is God and she is implicitly confessing him as God. More specifically, he's God the Son. He is the Son who brings us to the Father. Jesus is God the Son through whom, uh, through who through his life and death and resurrection and ascension reconciles us to the Father and brings us home where we belong. He brings us home to the Father. And as a pledge of all of this, he gives us the Holy Spirit to abide in us. Jesus says in John chapter 5, The Father desires that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. All should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. How do we honor the Father? We worship Him. We acknowledge Him. We confess Him. And so we do the Son also. Jesus goes on. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. We oftentimes kind of um, think today that there's kind of a generic monotheism out there that's kind of like gets you to first base. You know, and so there's all these, there's other people who are worshiping the Father. They're just not Christian. They're just, they don't believe that Jesus is God the Son and the Son of God. Well, you know, Jesus, he, he just wouldn't do that well with our, um, our pundits and so forth today because he says if you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. If you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. If you don't honor the Son, you don't get to first base. And that's why the Father, Jesus said, judges no one. The Father judges no one. We often think of, well, the Son, he's the nice guy. The Father, he's this guy with an angry, he's got the anger issue. You know, the Father up there. Jesus says the Father judges no one. But he has committed all judgment into the hands of his son that all should honor the son even as they honor the father. And if you do not honor the son, you do not honor the father. So the, the woman here is implicitly confessing Jesus as God when she publicly worships him. Okay. So great faith says this is the Jesus I come to and worship. It is God the son. But there is more here. The woman also confesses Jesus as Israel's Messiah and as the king of the world. Now, you may be wondering, when does she do that? Well, that's what's meant by this title, Son of David, when she says, Have mercy on me, O Son of David. That's what Son of David means. It means Israel's Messiah and king of the world, because that's what the prophecies speak of in the Old Testament the Messiah of Israel, the coming one, the anointed one, the Christ, the one of whom David was a picture, this one will not, he will not only be the Messiah of Israel, the king, the anointed king of Israel, he will be king of all the Gentiles, king of all the world. Now, it's interesting that the Old Testament scriptures that the apostles use again and again in the New Testament to explain how Jesus is the royal son of David are three psalms. There are three psalms that the apostles turn to again and again to explain how Jesus is the royal son of David. Those psalms are 2, 16, and 110. 
Psalm 2, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110. If you want some examples, I will just give you these passages. These would be good for you to read in family or personal devotions. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. This is part of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. There Peter quotes Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. You can read Acts chapter 4, verses uh, 24 through 38. There is, is Peter's prayer that's recorded, and there he quotes Psalm 2. Another passage is Acts chapter 13, verses 39, uh, 32 through 39. There you have Paul preaching, and Paul quotes Psalm 2 and Psalm 16. Okay. So again and again they go to these psalms. What are, what's in these psalms? Well, in a nutshell, Psalm 16 is a prophecy of the resurrection. It's the psalm that says, you will not allow your Holy One's bones to be broken or him to, to suffer decay. It's a, it's a psalm about the resurrection. And Peter points out in his sermon on Pentecost, he said, look, this wasn't fulfilled in David. We have David's grave with us still to this day where he was buried. We can dig up his bones. Okay? It wasn't fulfilled with David. He said, David, being a prophet, looked forward and saw that his royal son, the Christ, would be resurrected. And that's what he's speaking about. His bones would not be broken, nor would he suffer decay. And that was not fulfilled by Solomon or any other of David's sons, because they all died too, and they all went into the grave as well. Jesus is the royal son who fulfills Psalm 16. Psalm 2, there David speaks of the Messiah as God's Son being installed on God's holy mountain and receiving the nations and the ends of the earth as his inheritance and being set by God over all the nations, being given the rod of iron to bring judgment when necessary. And it's the psalm where all rulers and judges are... Uh, and kings are called upon to submit to the Son and to honor Him as the Son or else face His wrath and to perish in the way. Not just perish at the last day, but to perish in the way, that is, in the way of life, in history. Okay? So that's Psalm 2. And then finally, Psalm 110 is the psalm where David calls his Son his Lord. It's the one that Jesus uh, brings up. In Matthew chapter 22, when the leaders come to him trying to trap him, and he says, let me ask you a question. He said, who is the Messiah? And they say, he's the son of David. He says, well, if he's David's son, why does David call him Lord? In Psalm 110, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And of course, they, wouldn't, they either couldn't or wouldn't answer Jesus because the implication is, again, the son of David is God. The son of David is Lord. He is David's Lord. And that's why Jesus, in the book of Revelation, right there at the end, calls himself the root and branch of David. He's not just the branch of David who came of the lineage of David according to the flesh. 
He's also the root of David. How can he be not only the branch of David, but the root of David, the one who brought about David to start with? Well, that only makes sense if he is both man and God. And so in Psalm 110, David, uh, uh, he, David as a prophet looks forward and sees God calling his son, who is also David's Lord, to sit at God's right hand until such time as his enemies are made his footstool. And don't ever forget that in the Old Testament, footstool refers to two things. It refers to the earth. It says that heaven is God's throne and the earth is his footstool. So it doesn't mean something to God's trampling. It means where his feet rest. The other thing that is the footstool in the Old Testament is the mercy seat, the slab of gold that goes over the Ark of the Covenant. It's the place where the blood is sprinkled on the Day of Atonement. And so we are called upon to worship God at His footstool. That doesn't mean worship God or receive a boot to the face. What it means is worship God in the earth at the place where his, the blood of atonement is applied. Where did the blood of Jesus go? Did it fly upward? Where did it go? On the ground. On the earth. And so saying to, to Jesus, saying to uh, David's son, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool, means sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your workers. Worshippers. It's not the picture of a military regime being imposed on an unwilling world. It's the picture of an unwilling world being made willing and coming to faith in Christ. So these are the texts, these three psalms that the apostles turn to again and again to explain who Jesus is and why we must believe in him and worship him and serve him. And it's very interesting to see that the apostles connect the inception of these events. Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, being given all the nations as his inheritance, being given the ends of the earth as his possession, all his enemies being promised over time to be brought to be his worshipers. The inception of those events, according to the apostles, is the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. It is not, as the modern evangelical church often believes, his return. It is brought forward into the midst of history with the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. That's why Jesus is not just the Messiah of Israel. He is the king of the world here and now, and all are called to be his worshipers. Now, this woman is a Gentile woman. And yet she confesses and comes to him as the son of David, which is as Jewish of a title as you can get. There's not some separate Savior. Jesus is not somehow some kind of divided Savior and divided Lord, one Savior and Lord to the Jews and another Savior and Lord to the Gentiles. Two different Saviors and Lords. He's got going, creating two different peoples. That's not what is going on. He is the same Savior and Lord because this Canaanite woman confesses him as the son of David. 
Upon Jesus' ascension and the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost, we're told by Paul in Ephesians 2 that God has broken down the dividing wall between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. That is, between priestly believers and non-priestly believers. Okay? You have Gentile believers in the Old Testament. Okay? That dividing wall of the ordinances and the cleanness code and all the different things that applied to the priestly believers but not to the non-priestly believers, that dividing wall is gone. Dietary code and all of that kind of stuff. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that God has made the two into one new man, that he might reconcile both of them to God in one body, Ephesians 2.16. In how many bodies? In one body. Not reconcile the two to himself in two bodies, one for the Jews, another for the Gentiles. No, in one body. And so Paul tells us in Romans 11 to come to Jesus and worship him in the New Testament period is to be grafted into Israel. It's to be grafted into Israel. All right? And so there is one Savior, one Lord, one Son of David, one King of the world. He is also Israel's Messiah. He is the one that the Canaanite woman came to and believed in and worshipped. And this is the one that we must also worship and confess. The third characteristic of great faith as demonstrated by the woman of Canaan is that it believes Jesus is the only hope and that he can and will deliver. It believes Jesus is the only hope and that he can and will deliver. Peter said to the ruling council of Israel in Acts chapter 4 as he stood there on trial, he said, there is no salvation in any other nor is there any other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only hope, not only for salvation, but also for what this woman received. She needed the power and the love of God in her life, not just when she dies, not just on the last day. She needed it. A family member needed it now. But even in that context, she believed Jesus is the only hope. And she also believed he can and will deliver. That's why she didn't go anyplace else. Jesus kept pushing her off. She wouldn't go anyplace else. Why wouldn't she go anyplace else? Why don't you go to somebody else? Why don't you go to somebody other, some other rabbi? There are other people who... Uh, had different acts of power. We read about some of them in the book of Acts. Why wouldn't she go anywhere else? There's nowhere else to go. Because Jesus is the only hope. And further, she knows the character of God. He can and He will deliver. You know, we will never come to Jesus wholeheartedly the way this woman did unless we believe Jesus is the only hope, and unless we believe He can and will deliver. As long as we have even a little hope in something or someone else, we won't come to Jesus as this woman did. 
or as the centurion did, or as the two blind men did. And we have to realize this. Again, this applies to all of our lives. And so what it comes down to is like we can ask, do you believe? Well, the question is, are you eating? Well, how do you eat? Well, you believe. You come to Jesus. You have the faith of this woman. You believe he's the only hope. And so I ask you, you call yourself Christian. Presumably, you're hoping in Jesus for your salvation, for when you die, for on the last day. But are you hoping in Jesus when it comes to the little things of life, everyday life? Are you hoping in Jesus when it comes to um, having a husband or a wife, having a family, having a good job, whatever it is? Are you placing your hope in something else? Because if you're placing your hope in anything else, it's going to turn to ashes. I guarantee you, I promise you, it is not going to work out if you're hoping in anything else for any part of your life. Your hope needs to be in Christ. Trust what this woman is telling you by her behavior. She is showing you the way. She needed help for her daughter. She didn't go to a doctor. She didn't go to, there were Jewish exorcists. She didn't go to them. And she didn't say, well, I believe in Jesus as the son of David, you know, for my personal salvation. But my daughter needs help. This is a medical issue. That's not what she said. She came to Jesus for her daughter. Because Jesus is the only hope. And she rightly knew that he can and he will deliver. The fourth characteristic of great faith that we see in the woman of Canaan is that it is unentitled and persistent. It is unentitled and persistent. And I know it doesn't sound like those two words go together. But what does that have to do with one another? Unentitled and persistent. Uh, I'll get to that. I want to start out by focusing on the persistent part. And we can see that. That's right on the surface of our passage. Uh, she does not go away. She is persistent. She does not give up. She keeps asking. She keeps asking. She will not go away. We see basically the Canaanite woman fulfilling what Jesus told us to do back in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, he said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And these words, these verbs, ask, seek, knock, uh, in the Greek, they're in the present imperative, and you don't need to remember that, but you do need to remember this. What that literally means is Jesus is saying, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. It's not ask once, seek once, knock once. It's keep on, keep on, keep on. And that's what we see with this woman. In other words, keep on believing that God is merciful and that there is no other deliverer, that he loves to give good things, that he wants us to persevere in asking, seeking, and knocking. God loves it when his children persevere in asking, seeking, and knocking, just like this woman did. 
She persevered. She did not give up. God loves it when his children do that. And Jesus gives us this amazing promise in Matthew 7, 7. Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. He gives us this amazing promise solely to encourage us to keep on believing and therefore asking, seeking, and knocking. Now, the fact that he would give us this promise for that purpose implies that we need the encouragement. And when you think about it, you know it's true because we so easily become discouraged and give up, don't we? We so easily become discouraged and give up. But that's not what great faith does. Faith may, great faith doesn't. And so that's what we see in this woman. She just kept on because she had great faith. And one of the reasons I think we become discouraged and give up so easily is we don't understand why God doesn't just give us what we ask for immediately. Why does he want us to keep on asking, seeking, knocking? Wouldn't it be at minimum an annoyance to have children keep on asking and seeking and knocking? Well, no. Apparently not. It is something that God loves. Why? But why? If he wants to give us something, why would he just give us? Why does he want us to persevere in this? Well, because the Bible tells us that it develops this quality called perseverance or endurance. It develops that quality in us. And James tells us that perseverance or endurance is an essential quality to bringing us to maturity. That's what God wants for his children. Now, children are great, you know, at every stage. I mean, they're cute. They do all these things. They're great. But it's not cute if they stay that way, right? That's not good. It's supposed to grow up, okay? And one of the main things they need is not just character. They need perseverance added to all their character, right? All the good character traits, whether it's honesty, faithfulness, goodness, kindness, mercy, gentleness, whatever it is. You need perseverance in all of those things. And that's why James says perseverance has to enter into us and it has to do its perfect work. It has to work its way through all of us before we become perfect and complete in Christ. That's how we grow up in Christ. We grow up as sons and daughters of God. And so God wants us to keep on asking, seeking, knocking, because that develops perseverance. So Paul says in Romans 8, he says, that's why we glory even in our tribulations and our trials, because God's at work in those things. Perseverance, trials and tribulations means it's difficult. It's something that's difficult. It's something that's not pleasant. If it's pleasant, it's not a trial or tribulation. It's something that's unpleasant. And oftentimes, the most difficult thing about trials and tribulations is not the raw difficulty of it. It's the fact that it protracts. It lasts. It just keeps going on and on and on. And we have to keep asking and seeking and knocking. But that's what makes it a trial. And that's why James says, count it all joy. He doesn't say it's just fun. He says, count it all joy because God is at work 
to, to bring about perseverance. So God loves it when his children persevere in asking him and coming to him. Okay? He sees developing in us what we need to become more and more like Christ. And he sees developing in us what we need to develop the relationship with him. Okay? Now, I said that the woman of Canaan's great faith was not only persistent, I said it was also unentitled and that these somehow are related. Well, how is that? Well, being unentitled means that we, like the woman of Canaan, realize that our relationship with God and everything we receive from God is not on a merit basis or an earned basis or a deserved basis. God's good gifts and His blessing, they're not something we earn, and they're not something God owes us. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, of course God will forgive, it's His job. That's the language, well, a lot of times they say it as a joke, but that's the language of entitlement. It doesn't necessarily say I've earned the forgiveness, but it just says it's God's job to forgive. Well, that's the language of entitlement, okay? Rather, all of these things are based entirely on the love and the favor of God. They're all based on the love and favor of God, which means merit and earning has nothing to do with it. And it also means that God owing us has nothing to do with it too. Love and favor knock out both sides of that. All right? Now you can say, okay, I get it, because we're sinners. We're sinners, right? But it goes deeper than that. These things were true even prior to the fall. Everything Adam and Eve received were based on the love and favor of God. Okay, God creates them in His image. Now, they haven't done anything to demerit that, right? They haven't done anything at all. But He creates them in His image. What did they do to deserve that? Or what was there that made God owe that? It's purely His love and His favor. God creates this wonderful world. He puts them in the Garden of Eden. He gives them the tree of life. He calls them to rule over the world uh, as his vice regents. All of that is love and favor. And we haven't even gotten to the fall yet. They're not sinners. When we get to the fall, at that point, they demerit all that God has given them by his love and favor. And then what happens? we see God's love and favor super abound. They explode and even continue to give this to those who have demerited all through Christ. Right? So if it was all by love and favor, not by earning or not by it being owed prior to the fall, how much more is that now true after the fall when we are all sinners? James says this. He says, every good thing is the gift from God. It is the gift of God coming down from the Father of lights. That's James 1.17. Right? Everything is the gift, which means it's not earned and it's not owed. It's given because of love. Jesus in Matthew 7 talks about the Father giving us good gifts. Not good wages, not good desserts. 
So to be truly unentitled is to realize that no one has ever been worthy, not even Adam and Eve before the fall. And it has nothing to do with being worthy. It has to do with the love and the favor of God. It has to do with who God is. Not just what He did one day, but who He is. That's one of the main points of the Bible. That what God did in creation, and crowning Adam and Eve with glory and life, and what He has done now after the fall and giving us Christ, what He has done there shows us who He is. And this is why John says God is love, not just God did love. And so it's this faith, it's this understanding that this is who God is and everything flows from that. That's where this idea of unentitlement comes from. So to be unentitled is to be like the woman of Canaan. Those who are, who, who is it who perseveres in asking, seeking, knocking? precisely those who are unentitled and get it. That even if they had lived in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall, they would be unentitled then. Even then, it's all God's grace, it's all His goodness, it's all His faithfulness, it's all His love, because that's who He is. And it's all based on that. Everything we receive, it's all inheritance. What's inheritance? You don't earn it. It's not owed. It's given. And unentitlement gets that. This woman got that. Now, you would think if we're unentitled, how can we go and ask? It's like, no, because we're unentitled, we go and we ask and we keep on asking and seeking and knocking. And those who don't persevere oftentimes have a deep down sense of entitlement buried down deep somewhere. They have a sense of entitlement And therefore, they have a disappointment with God. A disappointment with God. Something hasn't turned out the way they thought. God hasn't answered some prayer or granted some prayer that they've been asking Him. There's some sense of entitlement lurking deep down there that leads to a sense of disappointment that begins to eat away at faith, love toward God, love toward others. That sense of disappointment. Why is it we see in the Bible, we don't see in Israel anywhere the kind of faith that we see with this woman? Or, you know, the centurion, Jesus himself said, he said, I haven't seen this faith in Israel. Why is it those who've already known God, who've come from a legacy of knowing God for generations and generations, why are they the ones who are basically the older brother in the prodigal son parable, who are sour? Because they don't get it. There's a sense of entitlement down there somewhere. And therefore, they're disappointed in God. Whereas this woman who has no sense of entitlement at all, she's the one who keeps asking and seeking and knocking. She's the one who knows how to eat because she believes And and we need to have that same kind of sense. To the extent we really are unentitled, we will persevere. And then brings us then to the uh, the fifth and final characteristic of great faith that we see in this woman of Canaan. And that is, it reasons with God based on his word and his ways. It reasons with God based on his word and his ways. 
in verse 27. She doesn't just say, yes, Lord, uh, you shouldn't take the food from the children's mouths and give it to the little dogs, but can I have some anyway? That's not what she says. She says, yes, Lord, but even the little dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now, that's not only a good comeback, um, that's faith. She knows the character of God. She knows who he is, and that's why she says this. God loves it when his children give him reasons for granting their petitions, and when those reasons are based on the ways and the word of God. God loves it when we give him reasons for our petitions that are based on his ways, his character, and based on his word and his promises. You'll see God developing his children this way in the Old Testament. You see him developing Moses uh, as one of his children on, on Mount Sinai, you know, when, when the people have built the golden calf and they've rebelled and God says, leave me alone, I'm going to destroy these people. I'll, I'll raise up a new people. I'll raise up a new th- people through you, Moses. Well, this is not God losing it. God knows what he's doing. He's a good father. He's really developing Moses. Moses begins to reason with God based on God's ways and his word. He says, he says Lord, if you destroy this people, what's everybody going to say? He brought them out of Egypt to kill them. And he starts reasoning, your name, Lord, your glory. Your goodness, your love, all these things are attached to these undeserving people that you've saved and brought out of Egypt. We see um, Abraham doing the same thing. When God says he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham begins to reason with him. Again, you can say in a certain way that God is play-acting with his child Abraham. And Abraham at one point says, Shall not the God of all the earth do right? Will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And so God loves that when we come to him with reasoning based on his character, his ways, his glory, his promises, and his word. So they have these five characteristics of great faith that we see with this woman of Canaan. And I would just leave you by coming back to the first one, which is the foundation for all the rest It is the fundamental act of faith, and that is it comes to Jesus and worships him. And I ask you, are you coming to Jesus? It's not something you do once. It's something you're supposed to do over and over, every day, multiple times a day, and and, in all kinds of different ways. Your life is laid out before Christ and you're coming to him, and everything that you do and everything that you seek is all a function of worshiping him and of laying yourself before him. I commend this woman to you as your example of great faith, and I encourage you, keep coming to Jesus and worshiping him as God, as the Israel's Messiah, as the king of the world. Persevere in your asking, seeking, and knocking, Get rid of any sense of disappointment, which is always coming from entitlement. Know that Jesus is the only hope, but that he can and will deliver. Come to him, persevere in that, and come to God based on his own word and his own ways.
In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.